0: I don't know how many of you notice this, but in the time that Irene and I have been here at PCC, we've really seen God's faithfulness in one particular way. Today was the first day that we had Hannah serving as a song leader here at PCC. And that was a very encouraging and blessed thing for us. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've actually had a complete turnover of our song leader since we came here. We had a wonderful brother and sister serving here last year, Calvin and uh, Jackie. And Jackie just moved on the last month, you know, she's going now to seminary and pursuing missions. And so God has been calling really wonderful people out of this congregation to go serve in other places. Uh, and he's also been bringing us wonderful new servants to come alongside us and serve. And Hannah has been such a joy. And we also have now Louise, Irene and Matthew, who all have come here, or not Louise, but (laughs) come here in the last year to serve together. And that actually is a reminder that we're going to be looking at different ways that all of you can participate in the life of the church. And upcoming, this next month, we're going to have a ministry fair, and we welcome all of you to see how God may be calling you to serve in this church And this goes along with what we've been looking at in Philippians. We've been looking at the community of the church. What is it that God has done in order to make his people a community, to make them one body? And there are a number of things that we see here in the book of Philippians that serve as the foundation for why as a church we are able to be a body of people. We are able to be A community that is united in a greater way than what is otherwise possible in this world. And this is through the work of God's Spirit in order to unite us first of all in purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We have a common hope and that is our reunion with our Lord. And as we look forward to that hope, we are being made into one body, the very body of Christ. And in becoming this community, we also share the same struggle. And that is the struggle against our old nature, which is a very self-seeking, self-glorifying nature. To become a people who will seek the glory of another, the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the struggle to trust in him and that is the struggle that we come to now in philippians chapter three and so i invite you to turn there with me Uh, we do have many new people here this morning Uh, i know many of you are coming uh, from pitt cmu and duquesne uh, to join us here and uh, if you do not have a copy of the book of philippians i saw julie waving them around earlier raise your hand and matt donham's got a number of those copies there. I don't know if we have enough, but raise your hand if you don't have one, and we'd like for all of you to have a copy of the book of Philippians in the English Standard Version. But we've come here now to chapter three, and I don't know, when we we read together as a body, it's a wonderful thing to read the word of God together, but sometimes we can just kind of mechanically read the words. But did you notice that there's kind of a Weird disjunction in terms of the idea. So if you're, you're thinking about this passage as we read through it, doesn't it seem a little bit odd to you? Because look at the ideas that Paul is bringing together here in chapter three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So the idea of joy and rejoicing. And that is put together with Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What a cause for rejoicing that is. (laughs) And so actually, Elder Gordon and I, as we were looking through the book of Philippians and thinking how do we uh, preach through this word, how do we go through these passages, and, and we actually had some discussion of does this actually fit together with the Preceding passage, or does it fit with this following passage about uh, flesh mutilating, evil doing dogs? And so, how does this passage fit together, or how does it fit together with the preceding passage? And what we have here is both an instruction and a test. And so what Paul gives us in this following passage, right here in chapter 3, is both instructions and a test that flow right out of what he has been writing in the preceding passage. And so remember the great principle that he's given us earlier, that that gives Paul a certain kind of power. It gives him the power to withstand suffering, to withstand persecution, to withstand the jealousy of others in the church and rivalry. And... In all those circumstances, he is able to rejoice. And why is that? Because of the great principle he's given us in chapter 1 and verse 18 For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And I trust that if you've been with us here in the last three months or so, that verse you probably have it memorized by now without even trying. But that is the principle that enables Paul to live in this Christian community, despite all the kind of troubles that he is experiencing in it. Just think about it. Uh, if you were visiting this church for the first time, actually so as I read that now, uh, I recognize that actually many of you probably are visiting this church for the first time, would you come and enjoy community in a church where others were jealous of you and envious of you? and trying to take your position and and, and trying to take advantage of misfortunes that had come upon you. And that is exactly the situation of Paul. But because Paul has this principle guiding his life, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he is able to rejoice in these circumstances. And so, when we come to chapter 3, what we see is that that first verse, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you, is actually the perfect conjunction between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And the reason that Paul in chapter 2 was talking about Timothy and Epaphrodites is to show us that what it looks like when we set other people's interests, other people's good ahead of our own. And you remember the preeminent example that he sets before us in that case, who is Jesus Christ himself, who though he is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Christ then becomes the preeminent example of this other-oriented life. The God who is, and though he is the greatest being in the universe, seeks not his own good, but desires the good of his people. And so that is our struggle for sanctification. Can we become like God? Because we as human beings are created in the image of God. And an essential aspect of that image of God is that we do the things of God. What God does, we do. And that means that we also have the same attitude as God. And so, just as God seeks the good of the others, we also seek the good of others. But, supposing you have been walking that journey, and you have actually come a good way on that journey, and you've been living a life where you have been pouring yourself out to others. That raises a problem. Well, what's the problem with being someone who does good for others? And it's this. Sanctification is just one hop, skip, and a jump away from self-justification, from pride, from self centeredness. One of the interesting things uh, that I've seen was an article that talked about those people who often work for a nonprofit and who serve in ways that seem very self sacrificial to the world. And one of the issues with people who serve in these kind of organizations is their life outside of that organization. Because there's a sense in which if you have been living a life and you think, I've been doing all these things for other people, well then, I'm entitled to something for myself. I'm such a good person. I've, I've done so much for others. And uh, we have a number of examples of people who, though they have served, oftentimes even in Christian organizations, serving others, who have fallen into terrible kinds of sin. And oftentimes, it is this kind of justification that goes on in their heads. I have done so much good, and because I'm such a good person, I'm now entitled to this. And so how is it that we guard ourselves from this kind of fall? If on the one hand, we're to strive towards the image of Christ, as we move closer to that same image, how do we keep then from falling into pride, from falling into the kind of destructive self-centeredness that is the very thing that God saves us from? And so let me give you a thought, and it's this. Dwelling on the beauty of Jesus Christ and knowing his goodness, and appreciating his sacrifice and glorying in the goodness of your Savior is just the other side of salvation. Being saved as salvation comes to fruition will inevitably bring you to focus on Christ. To have your mind dwell upon the goodness of your Savior and appreciate his beauty the glory of the cross and salvation are two sides of the same coin you would not find a christian who has become a faithful servant of god who does not also see the beauty of the lord jesus christ i hope this doesn't embarrass my wife i'm going to share something with you that she does And as I look at that, I see that in many ways, there's something that she's got in her life that I need to strive more toward. And so one of the things that uh, Irene, um, ever since actually we've had children has done is she gets up long before they do. And the reason for that is once they get up, there's really not a lot of peace and quiet you're going to have. And the thing that Irene used to do when we lived in this uh, small condo was she would get up and she would go into this little room that she had and she'd close the door. And if you take a look at her Bible, you'll see the evidence of this. And so uh, Irene and I have different personalities in some way. If you look at my Bible, my Bible's quite old, but if you, you can come up and look at it later, if you look at my Bible, it's in pretty good condition. I hate it when, when uh, you know the pages get dog-eared and folded over and stuff like that. And so I actually like, take a little clip, and I, I clip the pages down so the corners don't get folded up. And so you know, it looks really nice. Uh, some of you I can see are probably like that, like me. Irene's Bible is a mess. <laughs> there are so many dog-eared pages. And so it doesn't close quite right. But the biggest reason her Bible doesn't close quite right is not because there's a lot of dog-eared pages, which there are, but because she would do her quiet time every morning and she would just kneel over her Bible and she would just weep over the pages because she would look in the pages of God's word and she would see the love of her savior and the goodness of God towards her and examine her own heart and just weep over these pages of God's word to her of his goodness. And that is a huge part of the work of God in our lives, to bring us to see him. And as we have Christ set before us, what that does is it brings a certain kind of humility into our lives. Because even Christ, who was God, did not exalt himself but loved his people and gave his life to be obedient to the Father in order to present to the Father a people sanctified by his blood, saved from wrath and into a relationship again with the God who created them. And so this is what Paul is doing there in chapter two he sets christ before the church and he says look upon christ consider christ consider the attitude of christ who considered not only his own interests but set the interests of others ahead of his own and then as we walk that path of sanctification he gives us what it looks like in the people of god those who have been saved timothy and Epaphrodites. Timothy who Paul says, I have no one else like him who looks not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. And then he also says before them Epaphroditus, who he says almost died for the cause of the gospel. And he tells the Philippians, rejoice and receive with joy men like him who almost gave his life for the cause of the gospel. And the flip side of this attitude that we see in Timothy and Epaphrodites is how sanctification can go bad. And so that is why then Paul now turns to the safeguard. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So you've seen these examples. You've seen the example of Christ. You've seen the example of Timothy, and you've seen the example of Epaphrodites. Now hold that before you. Follow those examples because this is the flip side. This is what you might do instead. Because as we walk that path of sanctification of God, as we walk with the Lord, the temptation is to start thinking very well of ourselves. So what was wrong with the Old Testament law? Nothing, right? I mean, God had given it. This was the way of faith, that if the Israelites were to walk faithfully with God, they were to walk according to the Old Testament law. They were to follow it, and as an expression of their faithfulness to God, they were to keep all the law. And it would do two things. First of all, it would demonstrate their faith, but also it would show them the ways in which they fell short. And so there was also the provision in the law, as you know, of all the sacrifices that people could offer, depending upon the type of sin they had committed or the way they needed to come back into the relationship with god and so there was nothing wrong with the law but look at what paul says starting in verse 2 look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh and without being too graphic the first century reader would have seen this, especially the Jewish uh, authorities would have seen this in a much different way than we do today. Because think about how the Jewish people regarded dogs. They were not just these cute, fluffy animals that our worship leader Hannah keeps as pets. She used to train dogs, so we know she loves dogs. But Jewish people didn't see dogs in the same way. They were these unclean animals. Uh, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul is reversing, actually, the way that the Jewish person who valued the law and strove to keep it would see, actually, all of us as Gentiles. Because they would see Gentiles as dogs, people who were without the law, did not obey God, had no relationship with God, who did evil, and were cut off from the covenant people of God. But Paul now has reversed that on them. He says, it's them who are the dogs. It's they who do evil. And the very mark of their covenant relationship with God is nothing more than mutilation. (laughs) In popular parlance, we might say, them's fighting words. (laughs) Why is Paul so impassioned because the distinction between living a life glorifying to God that is walking the path of sanctification might look no different than a very self-justifying way of life. And the difference is one of attitude. Look at what Paul says when he looks at what these jewish people were doing after he gives the warning he says for we are the real circumcision who worship by the spirit of god and glory in christ jesus and put no confidence in the flesh though i myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also. And so this is very simple. What Paul is defending, the the, the message that Paul has here at the beginning of uh, Philippians 3 is not complicated. The simple thing he's doing is defending the gospel. Because look at what he says about his own life. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In terms of the Jewish qualifications, anything that any Jewish person would have done, Paul says, I did it better. And it's not pride that is driving Paul's words, but rather it is a realistic look at his life. He had lived an extraordinary life by any standards. And he tells us uh, with respect to the law, what he had done. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. The Pharisees were known for scrupulously keeping the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as we saw in see in the book of Acts, Paul had gone in in defending the faith had gone and dragged been dragging Christians off to prison and not only had Persecuted the Christians in Jerusalem, but when he was met on the road to Damascus, was striving to extend his program of cleansing the faith of this heretical Christian belief. A pers- as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Then what he, look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss The power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul talking about here? It's just the gospel message. It's not complicated, right? What he's saying here is this is how we are saved. We are saved not because of the works that we have done. Whatever anyone could have done, Paul had done more. But he said it was rubbish because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, because it is the work of Jesus Christ that is sufficient for salvation. And as much as Paul had done, it would not suffice to save him. And so he had given it all, not because he was making this great sacrifice for Christ. He does it. I count it as lost for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing him. And Paul gains his salvation not because of his own obedience to the law, which, as exemplary as it was, was not perfect and could not have saved him, in order to gain something he otherwise could not have had, his salvation. And so what Paul is impassionately defending here is simply the gospel. And so the what of what Paul is saying here is not complicated. It is simply defending the great reformation principle. Salvation by grace through faith alone. Sola gratia, sola fide. But here is where the test comes. Because as we look at this passage, what we see is not only the content, the propositional truth of the gospel, but we also see the effect of the gospel. And the effect of the gospel here is that this is the thing of surpassing worth to Paul. Let me ask you, What is the thing that is of surpassing worth to you? What is it that if threatened would cause you great anxiety? What is it that if someone else attacked it would provoke you? One of the things that Tim Keller talks about when he talks about idols of the heart is he says idols defend themselves. And so you can tell what really matters to someone when you know the things that make them really angry. (laughs) But I would extend that and say it's not only idols that can cause great passion, but it's what ACF was looking at last year, what is the treasure of your heart? And when the thing that you value above everything else, when that thing is attacked, that's the thing that's provoking. That's the thing that stirs the passion. That's the thing that raises wrath. And it can be a righteous anger or it can be a self-centered anger. Right? Because what we have here, what Paul demonstrates to us here, why he turns to such strong language in condemning these Jews that were striving to walk in that way is because they were promoting another way of salvation. And for Paul, the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ was his passion. Now, on the one hand, what does it matter if someone attacks God? If someone deprecates the gospel? Like if if we're engaging someone in conversation and they say negative things about God? Well, as a Christian, there's actually a great comfort there. Uh, There's uh, 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 the story in the Fellowship of the Ring when um, so I, I never saw the movie, I read the books, so I don't know if this is in the, in the movie part or not, but there's a point at which when uh, Frodo and Samwise are journeying through the land of mortar and they're just struggling and they're going through this cracked and barren land and, and they're trying to survive on the lembas and, 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 and striving to walk forward each day, carrying that heavy burden of the ring. And it becomes such a heavy burden that at times Sam carries Frodo on his back in order for them to make progress through this land. And there's one night that as they're laying there and they're looking at their journey and it looks hopeless. And they look up in the sky and they see the stars there. And the stars are untouched by the struggle that they're undergoing here on earth. And it's a comfort to them. And how is it a comfort? It's a comfort to us as Christians too because whatever anyone here on earth might do in terms of attacking God, is God disturbed by those things? God is not harmed. He is not harmed when people here on earth attack him or his gospel. But his gospel is there to restore us into the right relationship with him that we might receive his blessings. But there is a passion that Paul has for the gospel because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so any of us, when when those who we love are attacked, or when the things that we value are threatened, that raises our emotions, that raises an anger in our hearts. And the test here that Paul gives us not directly in his words, but in the way that he speaks is the question, is this your passion? Is this what you love? Because not only is salvation in the truth of the gospel, the effect of salvation is to transform the person. And so if you and I do not value the gospel in the way that Paul does, that shows at the very least that there is something amiss with our lives. There's a way in which the gospel still needs to take hold of us. If our purpose is to grow the church and we're willing to compromise the gospel in order to do that, then we've lost the foundation of what makes us a people of God. Because once we start turning in this way, you realize that that's actually the thing that destroys community. The effect of salvation is to bring people of different interests, people of different values together into one body that loves and cares for one another. But once we start living in a different way, that destroys community. Once we start thinking we're saving ourselves, that destroys community. And that is actually one essential difference between Christianity and every other religion out there. Because in every other major religion, you are the one who is responsible for your salvation. It is what you have done, what you have accomplished that determines your place. In Islam, in Hinduism, in all major religions. It is your work which establishes your place. Well, what's the consequence of that? If my place before God is dependent on my work and I think that I have a good place, who gets the credit for that? And do you see that is exactly what the people in this passage have done. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because they are putting confidence, Paul says, in what they have done. And ultimately that stratifies a community because there are those who have done what they should do. And because of that, They should prosper. And there are those who have not done what they should do, and that is why they suffer. As Christians, the salvation, the gospel of God, lays the foundation for who we can be as a community because it is a gospel of compassion. None of us is worthy. None of us has done what we need for salvation. None of us is righteous on our own all together are dependent upon Jesus Christ. And so Paul concludes in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so I want to leave you with a challenge today. And... Uh, I'll relate to you a story from my life that I think illustrates this, because it is so easy to turn away simply from seeking after Christ and knowing him. Uh, So a couple of members of our congregation started seminary this last week, and uh, I don't know if it swayed them at all, but I've shared with them a little bit of my experience going to seminary. And one of the things that drew me into seminary, so for those of you who don't know, I I used to work as an attorney, uh, but then I started taking classes just so I could teach Sunday school and look where that's led, but. um, (laughs) uh, One of the things that attracted me to seminary was this. Uh, So I'd gone to schools which were pretty, uh, we called it back in those days, cutthroat because people were in competition with each other. Um, and there was not a lot of charity given. In fact, I remember working on my senior project uh, for biomedical instrumentation uh, one semester uh, near the end of my program. And I remember being in the lab late one night trying to get my project up and running. And there was a bunch of us there sweating it out trying to finish up before the end of the semester. And there's one kid who wanted to borrow a protractor from another kid. And so he just said, Can I borrow your protractor? I mean, a protractor. And the guy said, No. And then the other guy started weeping. <laughs> I'm sitting there, I'm trying to work. I've got this guy bawling and this other guy being really mean. But anyway, I mean, that, that was the kind. And then after that, I went to law school, which was another not incredibly you know, filled with camaraderie sort of thing, because potential lawyers all think they need to be good at arguing. So uh, that was the environment I'd been in. And then I went to seminary. And I had this incredible experience. So. Going to seminary, I had no background in any kind of uh, uh, theological education. And I didn't know who all these people were that people were talking about. And I remember going in for my first class, and I really didn't know, uh, you know, like a lot of the terms and things like that. I didn't know how to write one of these theological papers. I was sitting there with the syllabus, and I was looking at this. It was systematic theology, which Howard's taking. And I had no idea how to begin the first paper. And in walks this other student. And he he asked me how I was doing, I said, well, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do for this guy, Dr. Bowder's class. And he said, well, I just had him, and I know this is actually kind of like, if you're going to write a paper in this area, this is what you need. And he said, you want to read these books, you want to take this approach, and this is what you need to do. And by the way, I just took a class from him. I know these are some of his favorite resources on this subject. Uh, You take them and give them back to me when you're done. I'd never seen that before. And as it was, I think every seminary in the community can be different, but when I went in there, there was such a different flavor than what I had experienced before. There was a care, a love within that community where people were taking care of each other. And so I wanted to fit in with this community. And there was something that was a little bit different between me and all the rest of the students. So most of these guys, I actually, I I told Gordon this, I wonder where they get these guys, because it just seemed to me like How do they find all these people who are so, like, mature, and, you know, I'm I'm not so mature. Um, I just didn't know where they came from. They just seemed almost inhuman. Uh, But once I got to know them, I really liked them, and I wanted to fit in that community. But there was something that kind of set me apart, and it was this. These guys were all fairly young, and they were working jobs like security, which was a great job to get because you could study your books while you're sitting at whatever station you're at. Or they were working FedEx because you could work odd hours and go to school during the day. And I was working as an attorney and I probably made at least three times as much money as any of them. (laughs) And so it was a very different kind of lifestyle I was living. Fast forward a couple years. And so uh, after I finished at uh, Central Baptist I then went to Trinity to continue my education and while I was there, uh, we were working for a while for a church, uh, but just part-time. And so I was making way less money than I was before. And I was, again, I was talking with Elder Gordon about this, and he said, you know, if I was in that life circumstance, I would feel like something had gone wrong. Because, you know, you're going from living a very comfortable, well-off lifestyle to all of a sudden you're scraping by and you don't have enough money. Actually, there was a very different way that I perceived it. And it's because almost every graduate student was struggling in this way. Because when you've done your MDiv, that's a number of years. Then you go and you do your PhD program. That's another couple of years. And during that whole time, you're not making much money. And so almost everybody, by the time they reach that stage, is financially struggling. It was very easy to look at that and feel pride. So actually, kind of the opposite thing, not that something had gone wrong. But actually, in a weird sort of sense, now I've arrived. I'm like all those other students that I used to admire so much. And I'm living the right kind of lifestyle. Look at all those other Christians driving their nice cars. We're all sacrificing here for the Lord. And we're righteous. And we're going to heaven. And who knows about them? Well, do you see what's going on there? With respect to zeal suffering financial hardship, as to righteousness under the law, serving the church. It's just one hop, skip, and a jump away from self-justification. And if we're to be the kind of community that we ought to be, what we need to do is focus on Christ and see that it's his righteousness which results in humility and a seeing of good in other people and desiring the good of others, the interests of others ahead of our own. But as you walk in faith, as you become a better Christian, paradoxically, in a sense, it becomes harder because it becomes very easy to focus on everything that you're doing for the church. And when you do that, are you seeing the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, your Lord? And so I'm sharing something that went a little bit haywire in my life. I encourage you to look at yours. Is there a way that you're putting your confidence in the flesh in what you have done and need to turn instead to Jesus Christ? Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that he might bring many to salvation. And I pray, Father, that we keep our eyes focused on him and treasure his gospel and make that the heart and soul of this church. That each of us would put the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ before us, that we would strive for him, that we too might glorify God and attain to the resurrection from the dead. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.